Thank you. Okay, so today's passage will be from Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 9 to 43. And as you get your Bibles open, I'll, I'll just mention to you after the service, if you'd like to join us so that we can welcome you to our church and get to know you a little bit better, that would be wonderful. So please feel free to stay longer. Okay, starting with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a, give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. As a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who, asked, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. 
Well, good morning, church. It's uh, very good to be uh, with you again and bringing you God's Word, particularly as we, uh, of course, head toward Easter. Well, if you were going to start a war or you were going to get involved in a war, which hopefully none of us will have to do, but if you were, you would probably want there to be some sort of leader, some sort of hero, some sort of person who was going to show the way, but not just our leader. You would probably also want around that leader some very skilled and competent people to help run the, the show, if you like. And so it is if you were going to uh, start a new business venture or you were going to seek election or even if you were just going to put on a big event, you would want there to be some sort of leader and around that leader you would want lots of competent and people with lots of expertise and lots of uh, skills and so on to get the job done. Well, Jesus here is on the way to Jerusalem. We didn't read that particularly in our passage, though we're told he's coming near to Jericho, then if you read on to uh, uh, chapter 19, he's in Jericho and and he is getting closer and closer until uh, in a few verses' time, he actually arrives at at Jerusalem and you know uh, the scene, the triumphal entry, as we often call it, where Jesus rides in on a donkey, people are praising God and shouting out to him, uh, the king has arrived, you see. And the king is on his way and Jesus is gathering around him uh, people, followers. He's the king, this promised Messiah. People are starting to get a sense of that. Now, what sort of people are going to follow the Messiah? Is he looking for the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the really good people, uh, since we're Aussies, the, uh, the t- tenacious underdogs. Is he, um, is he, what's he looking for as he heads to Jerusalem and as he builds a following, as he, as in their expectation, is going to fight the Romans? Well, surely he's looking for the best. Well, in this section, and, and we could have added a bit more, but in this section, Luke is showing us that actually the people Jesus is gathering around himself, the people who are following Jesus, are actually kind of the opposite. They're not what you would expect if you were starting a kingdom, if you were building something new. And so as we move our way follow Jesus, as it were, to Jerusalem and then the cross, as Jesus the King is crowned, we're going to see that the people Jesus has following Him are not the sort of people that we, in our worldly mindset, would necessarily gather around us if we were going to be doing something great. It's, uh, as I say, I could have included more, but it was already quite a big section. We could have included the the parable of the persistent widow. We certainly could have included, uh, in chapter 19, uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, though we'll mention him as we go through. But because it's such a big section, I'm I'm not going to go into detail of everything here. We're just going to see the big ideas as we go through. And as we come, we come to verse 9, and we read this, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. It's interesting actually, just as an aside, that if you are confident in your own righteousness, it is inevitable that you will look down on other people. Or to put it in reverse, if you look down on other people, the chances are that you are confident of your own righteousness. But 
these are the people who are following Jesus and rather than Jesus saying to them, well, actually, I'm not very interested in you, would you go away? He tells them a very, very challenging parable. He tells them this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, as we read the Pharisee, we might scoff at his arrogance, we might, uh, if you like, look down on him, um, because he sounds well, arrogant, doesn't he? he he's telling God uh, how good he is. And he says, thank you, God, that I am not like other people, all these terrible other people. Actually, this is the way the Pharisees kind of thought. They thought that you could impress God. Uh, and so this would have sounded quite normal to the ears of the people that Jesus is speaking to. when they get to the tax collector, they would have also expected, oh, well, that's right. I mean, this guy should be there beating his breast, not looking up at God. He is, they, the tax collectors are the scum of the earth. Uh, no wonder he, he is doing this. Uh, tax collectors, probably, I can't, couldn't really think of an equivalent today. Maybe someone in a, in a gang or someone who rips off the vulnerable or something like that. I mean, these are the lowest of the low. And people would have expected verse 14 to read something like, and the Pharisee went home confident of his righteousness, and of course the, the tax collector got nothing. He got nothing from God. He didn't deserve anything. He, 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 he was booted out of the temple as he deserved to be, on your way. And so they would have been rather shocked to hear Jesus say, I tell you that this man, that is the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you like that last sentence there, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted is really the key to understanding this whole section. At the core of what we're going to see is that we need humility but here this would have been shocking to them. A tax collector justified right with God? How? What are you talking about, Jesus? Surely it's the good man, the, the righteous man. You see, they thought that you could get your way into the kingdom by being a good person. They assumed that the sort of people Jesus would be looking for were those confident of their own righteousness. And like, if, if the Messiah has come and he's going to build a kingdom, it's going to be this kind of people, like the Pharisee. And you're telling me that it's going to be made up of people like the tax collector? Well, yes. Yes. Jesus' kingdom is going to be made up of people who realise they don't deserve to be there. Now, this parable is talking about sin and righteousness. I don't think that naturally as Australians we think about qualifying for Jesus kingdom on the basis of being good necessarily. We tend to value people on the basis of their accomplishments, on their achievements, on what they do. Right? Isn't, isn't that true? The, one of the first questions you often ask someone is, what do you do? And then we evaluate them. Don't, isn't that true? I mean, we don't tell them we're doing that, but that's we, we feel like we're worth something 
on the basis of what we accomplish in life. This is partly why social media is so poisonous, is because it looks like everyone else is accomplishing more than us. And so we feel terrible. And so while there's something good about accomplishing things, this can be a terrible, terrible burden for people. As they compare themselves to other people, they say, well, I'm not worth as much as that person. And we might feel that when we come to Jesus and his kingdom, that we ought to come to him, not so much with our goodness, but our accomplishments, our professionalism, our abilities, our capacity to do things for him. Well, Jesus, don't you realize, thank you that you have not made me like a useless person, like those people over there uh, on the doll or something like that. Thank you that you have made me an accomplished and a sensible and hardworking person that is really valuable to your kingdom. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus is after. And it's not that we ought to be useless in coming to Jesus, but like the tax collector, we need to understand that our sin has marred all the good things that we might otherwise come with. It's a bit like this. Imagine yourself, maybe some of you don't have to imagine, maybe imagine you're a skilled musician, right? You're, you're really good at the guitar or the keyboard or trumpet or whatever, and you, you come up onto the stage and you're going to play, and for some reason your instrument is out of tune. And so you play and it sounds awful, like it's just everyone's cringing in their seats and trying not to look you in the eyes and so on. And so you get out your tuner and you quickly tune it up and you play with skill and enthusiasm and interest and so on, but it's still not tuned and it still just sounds awful. It's still discordant and horrible. Well, friends, we come to Jesus with gifts and abilities, which, let's be honest, he gave us, with a background which he decided for us, and we have all sorts of capacity, but it is marred, it is out of tune because of sin. And so we, we cannot contribute to his kingdom. Now, when we admit that, when we come to him like the, the tax collector and say, oh, Father, I can't, I've got nothing to offer you. I'm, I'm lost, I'm broken, I'm a sinner. I, I, have mercy on me. He accepts us in, yes. And then he gives us his spirit and he starts to tune us. Well, that's what the fruit of the spirit is. The fruit of the spirit is being tuned by God. The fruit of the spirit aren't accomplishments. They're not skills. The fruit of the spirit isn't uh, musical ability and being able to speak and whatever. The, 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 the fruit of the Spirit isn't what you do, it's how you do it. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. They're, they're how you do things. It's tuning by God and he, he tunes us by His Spirit so that we, yes, we do have a part to play, but we must come to Him and say, Father, I am I'm out of tune. I am out of tune with your kingdom. And if I come in now, I, I'm just going to make a, a hash of it. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Are you willing to humble yourself and admit that you have nothing to offer God? Worse, he, you actually deserve his punishment. 
Now, that's humbling, but it's also freeing, isn't it? In a culture which our value is measured by our achievements, it is freeing to know that Jesus calls us, not on the basis of what we've done, but merely by pleading for His mercy. Luke continues, in a way, a very similar idea uh, by telling us that people were bringing babies to Jesus. I'm going to assume that random people weren't just walking around finding babies and then taking them to Jesus. I mean, that's kind of how it reads, but I don't think that's probably what happened. Um, I'm assuming that the people who were bringing the babies were somehow related to the babies and were bringing their children or something like that. But the disciples see this and they, 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 oh, go away with your children. I mean, this is the king. He's on his way to Jerusalem, don't you see? He doesn't need children fussing around him. Get get away. Children to be seen, not heard. Anyway, go off you go. Now, Jesus replies to them and he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. Let's be clear what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that children are innocent, they're kind of good until they get to the age of eight, (laughs) ha ha ha, anyone who's ever had children. Um, Children are innocent and therefore they get in and you don't because you're you're all sinners. Um, I mean... David disproves that when he says in Psalm 51 that he was sinful from birth, from conception, he says. Uh, but also, if, if that's what Jesus was saying, that children are innocent and we need to be like innocent children and then we can get in, well, how would we do that? <laughs> how would we suddenly become innocent? Like, I mean, that's just ridiculous. That'd be, it'd be depressing. But he's not saying that at all. What is he saying? Well, I want you to imagine that you are a, a child at that time. And you've been brought to Jesus. How do you respond to Jesus, do you think? Now imagine that you, as this child, you were there on the day that Jesus fed the 5,000. You were there, you were watching as the disciples came around with the bread and they broke off a section of bread and they offered it to someone and then the loaf that they had was as big as, the, as before. And you were kind of tempted, your mum wouldn't let you, but you just wanted to keep asking for bread because you just wanted to see if it kept coming off. And the, you know, that would have been pretty interesting. And so you've seen Jesus do this incredible miracle. And then there was you know, Uncle John, and, and he, uh, you know, when he was a bit younger, he fell off the roof and he broke his back and he wasn't able to walk for years. And you were there in the village when Jesus came through and everyone kind of lifted him up and took him to Jesus and Jesus laid his hands on him and healed. And now Uncle John is walking around. <laughs> and now you've been brought to Jesus. How are you going to respond to Jesus? How does a child respond in that situation? Like the Pharisees did? Oh, well, you know. What he did heal Uncle John on a Sabbath? I'm just not sure that we should really trust this Jesus character. I mean, I mean, the bread was good, but have you seen his disciples? That's <laughs> a tax collector and fisherman. <laughs> That's not how children respond, is it? No, what would the child do? They would 
be amazed that they were standing in front of this guy who gave bread to everyone and who made Uncle John walk. And you would, you would just be amazed that you were standing in his presence and that he was talking to you and interacting with you. Isn't that, isn't that what a child would do? I mean, what do children do when we, when we tell them, we say to them, you know, Jesus got out of the boat and he walked on the water. And that, he walked on the water? Yeah, he walked on the water. How did he walk on the water? Well, because he's God. And the child says, Jesus is God? Wow. Isn't that what, our, isn't that what little kids do? I and mean, that's what the little kids up in, kids at church are doing right now. As they're taught about, they're just lapping it up. And so Jesus says, I don't want you to be like these people who think they know better all the time, questioning and critiquing and doubting the very things that their eyes saw when I raised people from the dead and I healed people. And You need to come to me and accept that I am God and believe me. Now, he is not saying that you can never ask a question, that you can never have a doubt, that you can never wrestle with anything. That's not, that's not what he's saying. But he wants us to come with a childlike acceptance of him. To believe that he is God and trust him, even when we doubt, even when what he says crosses over with what we think the world should be. I mean, that's what the disciples were having to do. This, this whole chapter would have blown their minds. First it's the tax collector, then it's the children, then it's the rich guy who can't get in. And Jesus constantly crosses their cultural understanding of how the world works, and, and they, but they need to accept him as a child does. And so he calls us to accept what he is teaching us through his word as a child accepts him, even when we say, I do not understand how that works, but I will believe you, God. That is a humble position to take. That is a humble position to take. But they, Jesus says, are the ones who will enter his kingdom. Uh, Luke then uh, tells us about uh, the rich young ruler. He approaches Jesus. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus uh, tells him. Uh, essentially, he lists some of the Ten Commandments. Now, uh, if, if you look... He misses out some important ones. Jesus says to him, do not commit adultery, you, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. That's in verse 20. Now, you might notice, if you know your Ten Commandments, what he's missed out. In particular, he's missed out the Tenth Commandment, which is, come on, who knows the Tenth Commandment? Come on. Do not covet. Oh, I'm surprised that people in the West don't know that one. Um, anyway, do not covet. Do not covet. And well, the, he's also missed out the first com four commandments, which, which are all related to God. In particular, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And the ruler says to him, well, I've kept all of these commandments, all the ones that you've mentioned so far. Now, Jesus doesn't correct him, so perhaps he had, but perhaps he also doesn't correct him because he knows that the real issue is some, lies somewhere else. And so he says to him, getting at the first commandment and the last commandment, he says, well, that's all right. You go and sell everything you have and give 
to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. And the rich young ruler can't do it. Why? Well, because he's got a God other than God. And that God is money. Now, Jesus says to his disciples uh, something to the effect of, well, it's very hard for the wealthy to come into the kingdom because, in fact, it's as hard as a camel coming through the eye of the needle, which commentators disagree on. Some people think it's a part of the gate and camel, like a small part that a person could fit through and the camel loaded up couldn't get through there. It could actually just literally be the needle. Either way, the point is, as he goes on to say, what is impossible with man is possible for God. It's, Jesus' point is, it's, it's, it's very difficult when you love something other than God, when you love something so much that that's what you've built your life on, and Jesus comes along and says, follow me, to actually give that up and to, to move on. Now, Peter is excited because he has done that, and, and being Peter, he says, well, <laughs> Jesus, we've done that. How good is that, Jesus? And Jesus is kind to Peter, and he says, well, yes, you have, and don't, but don't worry, because whatever you've given up will be repaid in the, in the life to come. Now, what's, what's, what's for us to learn? Well, for a start, obviously, we cannot follow Jesus if Jesus will not be first, because then we're not following him. And it's worth asking yourself the question, uh, if you were in the young ruler's place, and Jesus came to you and said to you, uh, if you want to follow me, first of all, just go and get rid of your money, or maybe your career, or your hobbies, or I want you to go and live over here and leave the nice neighborhood you're in, whatever it might be. If God said that to you, would you be able to do it? Or would you go away sad because you didn't want to? That would be the first question, but I think beyond that, Jesus wants us to humble ourselves and live with an eternal perspective. Now, that might seem a bit odd, to to humble ourselves and live with an eternal perspective. Why do I say that? If If the cost of following Jesus for you is to give things up, it will look to other people as though you are not successful. If the cost of following Jesus for you happens to be that you are not going to take that high-flying career in order to serve Him, there will be people who look at you and say, well, you haven't made much of yourself. If you happen to give a lot of money away out of a love for Jesus to follow Jesus, and so you, the house that you have is not as good as the house that others have, or the car that you drive, or the clothes that you wear are not as impressive as other people's, that is humbling. Now, you're doing it because you love Jesus and you can see that he has an eternal treasure, that treasure in heaven, as he says to the young ruler. But it requires a certain level of humility now, in this world, to take that step. Well, uh, Jesus in the next verses, again, predicts his death. I'm going to come back to those in just a second. 
because we have another man who is willing to humble himself and then he is invited to follow Jesus. We have the blind man. Jesus uh, is approaching Jericho and there is a blind man sitting by the roadside begging. Now, I want you to put yourself again into the shoes of this blind man. Uh, We're not told if he was born blind or, or if he just became blind during his life, but either way, here you are, you've been begging for a good number of years by the side of the road, people give you food and a bit of money so you can get by, and you have heard of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Imagine what that must be like if you're blind or in some other ways, maybe a lame or something, and you start to hear about a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is going around healing people. (laughs) That would get you a bit excited, right? And then you hear about that he's teaching and you start to think about it because you don't have a whole lot else to do during the day. Um, And you think to yourself, this man sounds like he might be from God, like maybe he's the Messiah. And so there you sit on that fateful day and there's a commotion somewhere down the street. You can hear the, the crowd noise is, is different to what it normally is. And you, and you ask your friend, maybe uh, he's lame or something like that. And so he can see, but he, he can't move. And you know, well, what's going on? Why is everyone getting so excited? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Jesus of Nazareth? That's the guy. That's the guy that could heal me from blindness. Now, what do you do in that situation? Sit quietly and hope against hope that he might come over? (laughs) Well, I'll just see. I mean, mean, maybe he'll come, maybe he won't, doesn't matter. (laughs) Who would do that? No, no, he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone, oh, shush up. What are you doing? He's, He's a king, he's on his way to Jerusalem, don't you know? He's not interested in blind people, just away. And the crowd, everyone, everyone around him, just shush, and he's not interested in you, he's interested in me, don't you see? But they're not interested in you. And, 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 but what does he do? He calls out even louder, Jesus, son of David, that's a kingly title, have mercy on me. And of course, Jesus comes over, well actually no, he calls the man over and he heals him immediately and, and he goes off following Jesus, praising God. And it seems to me that the sort of people that come into Jesus' kingdom are the people who, I guess, like the tax collector, but but also like this man for different reasons, come to the point in their life where they see that Jesus is their only hope, that there's nothing else for them. And they don't care what people think of them, they don't care what people consider them because they've, they've become one of these weirdo Christian people that doesn't, that doesn't matter anymore because Jesus is the only one. He's the only hope. He's the only way. That's the sort of people that Jesus has in his kingdom. People who recognize their sin and cry out for mercy. People who are childlike, they see Jesus and they say, okay, I believe you. I don't understand always, but I believe you. People willing to give it all up. So they look forward to eternity with Christ. 
And people who are willing to humble themselves and <laughs> care about what everyone else thinks, if they can just have Jesus. Well, how, how would we get to that point? And the answer, of course, is in those verses that we skipped. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, they will mock Him, insult Him and spit on Him, they will flog Him and kill Him. On the third day He will rise again. How is it that we can, recognising our sin and our, our, how much we deserve judgment, how is it that we can come and beg for mercy from Jesus? How is it that we could trust Him with childlike acceptance? How is it that we might be willing to give up the things that we might otherwise love in this world on the hope that He will give us far more in the world to come? How is it that we would put aside honour in this culture and be willing to be ashamed, a fool for Christ, as it were? How is it? Well, because our King humbled Himself unto death for us. When we cry out for mercy, we're actually asking for a huge amount from God. Our sin deserves punishment. For God to show us mercy, someone must take the punishment. He is perfectly just. And so for Jesus to show us mercy, He had to walk with determination to the cross. He knew He was going to be mocked. The God of the universe mocked. He knew He was going to be spit on and flogged. He knew he was going to be nailed to a cross until he died and he did that so that he might show us mercy. So that he might show us grace, that we would get what we don't deserve, forgiveness and rescue and restoration and retuning. You see, Christ, our King, humbled himself for us. He shows us our need in humbling Himself. We deserve judgment, but He also shows us our escape, our escape because He took the judgment for us and He rescues us. And so now He calls us to humble ourselves and follow Him. And we can because we're following the humble King, the one who is willing to go to death for our sake. We can entrust ourselves to Him knowing the sort of king that he is, knowing that we are safe and loved by him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus. That though he knew he would be mocked and beaten, scorned, spat on, and ultimately killed in a horrendous way, he walked with determination to Jerusalem. 
though He knew He would bear the weight of our sin and the punishment for us, He walked to Jerusalem. Thank you that we do not have to bear the weight of trying to impress you, of trying to earn favour with you, of trying to impress other people even. Thank you that we can rest in Christ our King, who shows us mercy and grace. And we pray, Father, that as we move on through Easter, that you will continue to impress this upon our hearts and make us stand in awe of our Saviour Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.